That was a long and drawn out one. I promise people that wasn't me this time. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasy. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. Hawkins Austin, introduce himself. So can you tell our listeners and viewers a little bit about you? Um, yeah, I guess I'm a, uh, I've worked for DOD military. Um, I'm a contractor, um, filthy contractors with DOD always refers to me. Um, been all the way up and down there and, uh, I'm a rocket scientist in my spare days and I've been writing for, uh, over 10 years. Um, used to got into it playing D and D and stuff like that. And I was going to write science fiction, uh, but I can't get it past the censors. So, uh, I started writing fantasy, and uh, so here we are. That is awesome. The second part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we found them. So uh, Hawkins is yet another author brought to us by the one, the only, Mr. Declan Finn, fr- Declan Finn friend of the show. Uh, we had a slew of cancellations because, you know, summer and babysitting and the like. And uh, Declan hooked us up uh, through his connections with Tuscany Bay, which is the publisher, you know, Richard Pellini, I'm butchering it. He was a previous guest. You can, yeah, you could check that episode out, and I butcher it there too. I promise, it's the regular thing. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, uh, Tuscany Bay has saved uh, a bunch of us from. Uh, uh, well, there's been a lot of publishers go under. Uh, this is my third publisher, so um, uh, we're real happy to be on Tuscany Bay. And uh, Declan actually writes four bazillion books for every book I put out. That's an accurate count, by the way. And so uh, <laughs> you can read his stuff all day long. That is that is awesome. He is a, a prolific guy. I think it's just he doesn't sleep. That uh, he also doesn't have kids, which helps. Yeah, I think the kids part is probably huge. Also, he's not traveling back to Italy anytime soon unless they carry a bomb in his luggage. That's a fact <laughs> all in itself. Yeah, I think he told it one of the times he was here. Uh, got tr- caught abroad, in, uh, in a nutshell, dear listener. He got caught abroad right when the lockdowns from COVID happened, and hilarity ensued as he tried to get home. <laughs> hilarity so. ensued. His his uh, Twitters are are um, uh, not not suitable for broadcast, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely, but they are enjoyable. So but before we get too deep. Before we get too deep into this interview, we have to ask you the religion question, sir. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Oh, what? No. I like all three. Um, I was raised on Star Trek. I went to Star Wars in 78. And I guess I was a little late coming to Firefly. I really only saw them on DVD. So um, I did see Serenity in the theater. Um, For universe's sake... Yeah, if you could stick with the first three Star Wars, I'd have to jump to Star Wars. That's a that's a King Arthur myth, and dang, I like I like Star Wars. Um, the books, uh, the books were good too before they um, they got yeeted from canon. Yeah, I think my first Star Wars book was Splinter of the Mind's Eye, Alan Dean Foster. Um, I've read that read that when I was, uh, man, thirteen, fourteen. I mean. I think for me, it was the X-Wing books. I think it was Red Squadron, I think was the name of the series. 
but it's been a while and I haven't been able to find it since because I wanted my kids to enjoy it. And sometimes books we enjoyed as kids are hard to find when we're adults and we want our kids to read them. And my wife's got the Thrawn series up on our shelf. They're all signed by Zahn. Um, another great author everyone should read, Timothy Zahn. Um, he is, and he's he's written some of his own stuff outside of Star Wars that's amazing as well, but sadly not as well read. Um, my favorite one, and it's because I'm involved, was the God Particle. What was that one called? Um, maybe it was the God Particle. It was something like that where he had uh, angels and demon particles, good particles and bad a black hole was splitting particles into good and bad. It's a very interesting book, but um, the spacecraft, when it gets near, has a lot of uh, upsets from radiation. Um, we had a conversation at a con back at Liberty Con back in ninety several, and uh, and he tossed that in. Nice, nice. That's always a good thing. All right, and because we are polytheistic here at the Blasters and Blades podcast, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or the Wheel of Time? Oh, that's that one isn't tricky. Lord of the Rings. And again, I read that when I was 16. I also read Wheel of Time, um, not when I was 16, but up through my mid-20s. Uh, but, um, but Tolkien is still... Um, I I know that nobody else should write like him because he breaks a lot of rules. He ought to be considered the most boring writer historically. But I will read his chapters for days because they are this images and 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 he has such authority when he's writing that you know that culture existed. It's it, he had a skill that um, I. If I could do exactly what he did, it would still never get published, but I would feel really good about my writing to have that authority in writing. Yeah, he um, he was a, a league of his own. Um, so, and uh, his biographies are pretty interesting about his time on the Psalm, uh, World War One as well, um, which, you know, sort of inspired Lord of the Rings, which is why I looked deeper into his time in the army. So, the... Um, we here at the Blasters of Blades, as you know, dear listener, like both the fantastical and the science, scientific, but um, Hawk, what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Okay, so story time. My dad decided I should start reading real books. Okay. Um, I, I learned to read by having books thrown in front of me, and I went through them fast, and mostly they were Hardy Boys and the equivalent. And so my dad decided at age nine, I had to have a real book. So he put The Star Beast by Robert Heinlein in front of me. And it took a lot longer to read than everything else I'd ever read before because, because it had real words in it. But once you, well, the fact is it's a bad joke. It's almost a dad pun. Um, but once you get past the barrier of words, science fiction is... Um, everything. Fantasy, on the other hand, is a lot more accessible because when you're thinking hard science fiction, trying to build a, a, an incredible universe where the science works is hard. And it's a lot easier to build it for a 16 or a 9 to 16 year old kid than it is for a, a modern adult like myself, who I know way too much about science and I can keep pointing, you know, oh no, that's fantasy, that's fantasy. Fantasy 
your world building allows you a lot more flexibility because you don't have to say, uh, would that power source ever work? No, it's magic. It works just fine. And I prefer that. Um, I like my worlds real well built, but uh, I like science fiction. I live science fiction. I'm, I am still, my career is inspired by science. Um, I have secondary careers that are also inspired by history, and that's more fantasy-esque because um, I'm kind of an Irish historian, and so and a Catalan historian. And Okay, stop. Um, I like history, and that inspires a lot of my fantasy work. So when I read a lot of history books, I'll write a fantasy novel. And when I'm reading a lot of science or I'm working with a bunch of military guys, I end up outlining big space battles and uh, science fiction. And I'm trying still to um, not write things that will get me arrested. So I'm working on that one real hard. You're too pretty for jail, so I get it. Yeah, yeah. I don't look good in orange, so we're, we're out of that. But um, the, um, the not to do story after story, but um, I, I've worked in a classified environment for half my life. And I do know what science is capable capable of today. Unfortunately, that sneaks into the things I write. So I like to make sure that I write fantasy across the top so that uh, I don't get arrested. Um. <laughs> that is a solid plan. And uh, I can imagine how that could slow down the writing process when you got to wait for the censors to come back to you. So, and, well, uh, I put pure poison on uh, uh, John's desk and he looked at it and was like, this is fantasy, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, Okay, and he handed it back to me, and I'm like, "Doom, best way to handle it." <laughs> <laughs> so, what is your first memory of engaging in science fiction? Then, was it uh, watching stuff with your dad? Was it their board games? Um, I don't know if video games were available when you were young, but uh, where did you discover? <laughs> there were, there were, but uh, um, my first stuff. Wow! So, my dad had a little black and white TV, and I watched Star Trek on the little black and white TV up in his office. Um, my dad was a rocket scientist as I am. And, um, we, my dad is not a people person and I won't say he was a bad father cause he wasn't, he just didn't understand kids. And as I got older, um, our engagement used to be over scientific Americans and things like that. We had to talk science because he really didn't know how to how to engage with a kid and so by the time i'm 16 i was working at um magnetohydrodynamic lab test and uh, we were running a plasma through a magnetic field to draw current off of it and it blew up pretty spectacularly but since i spoke fortran at the time i was working the console and um i was 16. So I've been in this rocket scientist, mad scientist business for um, 40 years. Uh, um, and so science is kind of like my life devotion. And it is following in my dad's footsteps. Who's following in his dad's footsteps? My grandfather was in um, um, oil distillation. So he worked as a scientist um, and an engineer all his life. Um, when I was a kid, nobody knew what an engineer was. They'd ask me where I worked on the train. Um, then <laughs> um, video games did come out, but um, not on the computer. Um, we, we'd go to the arcade. Um, 
Uh, I suppose I, I shot down enough nuclear missiles on Missile Command, but if anybody remembers that game, um, I do. <laughs> I gotta move my hands fast. I gotta get all three missiles in the air. Okay. Yeah. So you've heard all the rocket uh, science jokes, I'm sure. Then. Uh, no, I never heard of rocket science jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so what is? Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no I want to hear one. No, I don't know any offhand. I just, you know, the it's so easy. You know, it's not rocket scientist. I guess is the the one everyone goes. Yeah, I'm not a rocket to. scientist. I'm a I'm a mad scientist. I'm a angry engineer. Um, it's not uh, rocket surgery. Um, but we used to make uh, quantum physics jokes in school, so we really have a twisted sense of humor. I can do one of those. Want to hear a really bad joke? Sure. So, did you ever hear about the the fans for the quantum physicist football team? No. They knew the wave, but they'd never been in an excited state. <laughs> I, I approve. See that now Doc's going to be kissing or kissing, kicking herself for not being here, but she's doing the whole Dragon Con preparation stuff. And I got to get but, back. Uh, it's a lot, a lot too much peopling for me. So, what is it, uh, broadly speaking, about speculative fiction as a genre that you love? Um, that's a, it's the the Star Trekiness. It's what are we gonna do to get off this planet? How do I build a better rocket? How do we get a moon base? How do we get Mars? I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to make people and equipment work. And when I was a kid, it seemed an impossible hill to climb. And when I worked on the ISS, it seemed a pretty big hill to climb. And um, now that I'm getting a moon lander, I'm literally working on a moon lander. Um, it's, it's a place we're going. And for me, the fiction is just road mapping. What do we need next? How, how do people need to behave to, to live together in space? We can't be this way in space. Um, the things that work um, in the United States were a bunch of libertarian to, um, you know, I don't care about hard right, hard left, but the average American is so freedom-loving, libertarian. You can't run an anti-gun platform in Colorado, the one of the more liberal states. This is this is very necessary for us expanding across the frontier. Will it work in space? Do we have to be different types of people to be in space? It's it's interesting to think about. In fantasy, it's easy. You can turn a button and say, now that people are different. Um, these are elves. These are orcs. These are different. But um, in science fiction, you have to <laughs> you have to pacify a planet to save it. And uh, we all we've all seen Serenity and. At least that's at least one of your religions. That was a, a roadmap right there. Um, a cautionary roadmap, but absolutely a roadmap. Uh, there's some, you know, for a, for a freaking Western in space, um, they put in a real nice piece of thought in that, didn't they? They did. So because you talked about what's possible and... Uh, Presuming you don't work for Elon Musk, you could answer this because you don't know anything. You're just, you know, somewhat more informed than normal observer. Do you think the uh, the Mars colony is realistic or any extra Terran, you know, space yeah. habitation? Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So water is our current hole. Um, I could do anything if you can bring 10 tons of water per person. Um, that is absolutely unworkable. So with the Equus, Equus technology and um, some of the others that I've worked on, I can drop it down to about a ton and a half per person per year. Now I've got to find for a colony of, say, 150 people, I've got to find 100 tons of water a year, or we have to come up with a really better um, um, water reclamation methods. And that's kind of gross and nasty stuff, but it's doable. So we're going to be keep what was possible in the Apollo era 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, God bless, I'm old. What was possible 50 years ago versus what was possible 20 years ago versus what's possible in 50 years. I don't want to take 50 years for obvious reasons. Um, I want us to go faster. Um, but I've got a, I'm working on a different piece of the curve right now. Um, uh, traffic control in space, <laughs> landing and adjustment and uh, long-term uh, circuits. Unfortunately, we're in a death spiral with circuits and we're going to have to work our way through it. Um, you don't know what this means at all, but in the military and in um, space, we worked on radiation-hardened circuits and long, um, long high longevity circuits, very low fit rates, things that are going to be good basically saying, if I grab this laptop and take it into orbit, how long would it last? Answer, months. That's not good enough. Well, if I radiation hardened it and had a low fit rate, how long could I last? Maybe 10 years. Okay. Well, as soon as we get that built, we get a design together, technology changes, and then it changes again, and then it changes again, and we're chasing it, and we can't keep up. They're building three nanometer circuits now. I can tell you, we haven't tested them. I've tested seven nanometer and I am way ahead of everyone else's curve because I am on the bleeding edge. But um, military are still at 19 nanometer and here's the horrible secret. Nobody's building them. There isn't a, a, a um, circuit building assembly. There's nobody cutting wafers in 19 nanometer technology. So when the army is ready, to, to roll out their hot new 19 nanometer rad hard technology, they haven't got anybody to print it. So we have problems. We have real deep problems that I'm chasing. Other side of the problem is the simple stuff. How are we going to get food? Can we grow potatoes on Mars? Probably not. But I like the concept, the Martian growing potatoes on Mars out of his own um, biological um, extras. Um, that's so they actually, are you familiar with Dr. Becky? She has a YouTube channel. She's an astrophysicist from the UK. Does a I channel where she. Does she think. So she actually said there's been some scientific papers on soil that has the same composition as what would be on Mars based on what we've got from the rover in, in very narrow straits that probably working on a theoretical level, but not practically, but on a theoretical level, she says it's possible. We're going to have to um, move um, metric F tons of bacteria and good soil over. And I, it's possible. And it's possible in your lifetime, maybe in mine. We'll have to, to think about that one, but we keep hoping. I think it's doable. 
but the roadmap is still being laid out one bad book at a time, one good book at a time, one bad movie at a time. I, I can't wait. So that, what? So that's one of the things. It's it's I I say this, and uh, Scott Bartlett's a f uh, friend of mine. He's also an awesome author, and I I manage his Facebook group just because I enjoy his stuff, right? And I started doing that a while ago, but. One of the things we share there is some of the science articles and we just sort of nerd out over it. And it's just, it's amazing time to be alive with the science of it, of it coming all, you know, with the space race being revived. The issue is it's not spending money on it. Cause I, you know, you hear left and right companies spending this, it's spending the money efficiently. Unfortunately, I think a lot of our corporate and governmental entities have forgotten how to do what they did in the moonshot, which was be lean and mean and, and make it work. Yeah, so we, we've we've got to get that. back to that. And the government is um, absolutely incapable of doing anything useful. Do you understand? NASA is working on launching a giant Titan missile thing. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed at uh, NASA, but they, you know, they lost my confidence when they got rid of Pluto as a planet. What do they know? <laughs> so oh, the definition's worse than that. The definition of planet is so bad. My wife asked me yesterday. This article is talking about an exoplanet. What's an exoplanet? I'm like, every planet that isn't one of our basic eight is an exoplanet because they've screwed up the definition of so of planet so badly that only our eight planets are planets. And she's like, well, what do you call a planet around another sun? An exoplanet. Why? Because it's a bad definition. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I've I've scratched my head at that. Like words matter. I know this as an author, so when I see some of that, I'm like, yeah. Could you maybe rethink that? So uh, before we start, because uh, you know, we've already sidetracked with the science, and I love nerding out over this, and I'm guessing uh, your fans listening are going to love this too. So obviously, at this point, anything about terraforming is so far into the theoretical range that you know, even if we could start it, it would not. It'd be lifetime of lifetimes before it would have a noticeable impact. That old proverb, may you plant trees whose shade you'll never sit on, that's what terraforming will be or sit under. Yeah. So, but but from a purely scientific level, do you think it's it's viable uh, as an option to potentially terraform? Um, the problem is the planets we have to work with, and Mars is um has a has a a, a deep problem. Um, I've, I've had their um, Due to some bad planetary science in the 70s and 80s, there are some no-go subjects, so they'll argue with you. But Mars got hit by a, an object about a billion years ago, and it breached the core. And Mars is dead. I don't know that there's any way to revive a planet. Um, that said... If we created, oh, I don't know, some kind of an atmospheric generation device, um, there's a, oh God, I can't remember the book. Um, there's a, a horrible old book where the, they put giant, uh, generate, giant uh, furnaces on Mars and they, they're on train tracks and they're building their train tracks as they go along cooking off the, the surface of Mars and building iron out of it and building train tracks and keep going. And they're spewing uh, oxygen and sulfuric uh, acid into the, to the sky. You need an active atmospheric generation to, to survive. And currently Mars doesn't have one. We humans might build one. Venus, 
is gonna um venus is bad um maybe it's solvable what i'd love to do is strip off venus's atmosphere stick it on mars and that would improve both of them greatly um that i don't know a way that you know unless gate technology shows up and we can open a gate on one and vent it to the other uh, and then throw in some water from Europa. And then, hey, we could build a planet out of what we have in the solar system. <laughs> so the one that I saw was the uh, an article, uh, PBS put it out, a video on their YouTube channel. And they've got this guy, I can't remember his name, but he's got really long hair. He looks like a hippie and he talks science on the video. But I I'm there for it. But he did one where basically you use solar sail technology to prevent the sun from hitting uh, Venus, which would cause it to slowly cool and then to get exponentially faster to the point where it becomes a barren ice land. And then you can import uh, topsoil and basically build a solar okay. or ecosystem on top of the dead ecosystem, in which case you could create over time. Yeah, the only worry I have about Venus is we're going to get neck deep in it and find that there's some creature out there that lives on this sulfuric horror, horror story of an atmosphere. And they're all down there living just fine. And, and, you know, as soon as we discover them, um, and, you know, they could be, you know, bacteria the size of your fist or whatever they are. And, and suddenly Venus will be off limits. Um, it's got such an active atmosphere that I would like to see that something lived in it. But I'd also like to see something lived in Europa. But um, what I like ain't, ain't going to necessarily happen in the real world. I keep hoping we get good science missions. Well, so the problem with that is we are, you know, that you're not wrong to consider it uh, because we found microscopic bacteria in the sulfur flats. So we know uh, carbon-based life forms aren't the only kind that are viable. Right. Um, and so it's, it's very possible that e even more than, you know, microscopic, we just never know because we can't get down there, that things are possible on Venus. So it'll be interesting. Like I said, it's a crazy time to be alive. Yeah. Um, there's, there's an astronomer that, yeah, there's an astronomer I knew grew, growing up. Uh, he ran the local planetarium, and that was his catchphrase was, don't forget to look up. Because it's, you know, it's we're learning cool new stuff all the time. Yep. Uh, so how did your, and we're going to get back on track with our scheduled interview now that we've nerded out and everybody's asleep. We'll wake them back up. Uh, how did your love of speculative fiction writ large transition in the, into you writing stories in this space? So D&D. D&D. &D. Um, D &D. Okay ate my life. Um, anytime um, my brother and I fought uh, roughly 365 days a year. Um, and the only thing that uh, ever stopped us from fighting was sitting down over D&D &D where we fought other people. Um, <laughs> and uh, after a couple of years of that, I started on beginner D&D &D and then got advanced D&D. &D and um, I, I had to buy the manuals in uh, 80, 78. Yeah. That's been that's been a long time ago. And uh, we started playing and um, we still fought. But then I got into high school some years later and found four or five guys who'd come over every weekend and we'd hang out for two days and game. And these were my this was my clique at high school, a bunch of nerds. Um, and uh, that kind of kept up into college even. And so. I can, the, the Hawk superpower is a story on a dime. You know, people would come in and say, we don't want to play whatever game we had set up last week. Hawk, can you tell us a story? Can you get one together? And I'm like, uh, give me characters. And they're like, all right, what are we going to make them up out of? Here's a, 
GURPS. We're going to use GURPS supers. Have a have a story ready in an hour. Okay. And then um, uh, long story after that. So we're still, I'm still gaming. I'm not gaming as much now, but we do have a game this Saturday. Um, when I was uh, working for um, ASI, we had a period of underemployment. And I, uh, um, I don't stop working. I got four or five other jobs while I was at it, but none of them were really paying money. And ASI still had technically was employing me. Uh, we just ran out of our uh, grant money. I was a grant writer for a living for four years. And, um, and we ended up failing. And so I, uh, I didn't know what to do. And the wife said, take one of those stories. You're telling Nick all the time, my son, and uh, turn it into uh, a book. And so I wrote it down and it was uh, 9,650 words. And, uh, uh, and I talked to some, and Stephanie Osborne was my first editor. And uh, she told me how to actually write and uh, how to do paragraphs and how to do chapters and how to do all the other little details. And six months later, I was employed. And so this took a lot of my writing time away. But over that six months, I'd knocked out about 100,000 words. And um, I sent that to a variety of editors. And finally, um, finally, it got picked up by Superversive um, back in 2012. And no, I can't be right. 2014? I don't remember. Anyway, at some point, Superversive picked it up. And I wrote a couple of books for them. And then they went under. And I wrote a couple of books for Silver Empire. And... They went under, <laughs> and now I've written a book for Tuscany Bay, and let's hope they don't go under. I've got a second book on the way. Uh, I sit down, and I knock out a 1,000 words every few days, and it takes a year to knock out a novel, and I keep doing it. I don't know if there's a transition in there. It just is all part of the same storytelling. Over time, that adds up. So do you do still do short fiction as well? Um. I have, yes, I do. Have I tried to publish any? No, I have not. Um, I two or three of them. I'm really not as good with short stories. I've got to work on, I have this, I, I want the characters to have these long arcs with history and multi, and I can't stick them all in a short story. So I have to learn to remove the arc from the short story and, and really focus on, on the two things happening and and how that happens i wrote a short story on pure poison and um and i got that one and i managed just enough shift in the arc that i felt like it was a real story i still haven't found anybody who wants to publish it um but um it's the i'm working toward learning how to write short fiction better i tend to put too much into um into the development so that the short fiction isn't working but uh shoot uh i've got a short story i'm trying to write uh for a pulp uh, uh swords and sorcery book uh i'll have to go look up who's um the guy who wrote chalk and i've lost his name suddenly um um bless he's a friend of mine i've lost his name anyway he's doing an anthology and he asked me to uh produce something uh brave knight defending a lady and i'm like 
got about 20 million of those ideas. Let me write something down. And so I'm going to try to actually settle down and do that after I finish Court Human. It's good to be ambitious. So many authors, and obviously, you know, you work for the government, so, you know, censor your answer appropriately. But many authors will let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So are there any specific uh, formidable moments that you think shape you as a storyteller? Yeah, I write about family a lot. Um, I am like, nothing exciting. I've got divorce, marriage, divorce, marriage. I've got a lot of um, my own family and my family's issues. And to me, that um, family dynamic, um, especially in broken families, families with missing parents, um, there's, there's a lot of that that matters to me. Also, um, I, I mean, everybody in, in my novels is a person. Um, most of them are people I've met, talked to. Some of them, thankfully, are not because they're psychos. Yes, I have psychos in my story, too. But most of the people in my stories are people um, who I've, I've, I've known long enough that I've built a model of them in my head. And, and so I ask them what they're doing and how they would handle these issues. And so... Um, I don't, I'm not a, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I don't have any major traumas. I grew up a poor ass farmer in the middle of nowhere. My dad happened to be a rocket scientist, but we're living on a farm in the middle of Tennessee, 30,000 a year income, 30 acres and uh, um, hand-me-down clothes and all that divorced family, no money. And, uh, 50 years later, I'm a rocket scientist and I'm making six figures and um, I have the awesomest wife and I have everything anybody could imagine. I don't know how I went from point A to point Q, um, but luck. I, I have, I, I fight. I fought professionally. I fight all the time. Even at 55, I fight at least once a week and uh, I've broken everything. And I still, well, today I'm walking with a limp because doing a step back lunge, I torqued my knee. But in general principles, I get hurt so often. I can't believe I'm not walking around with one arm missing. And I'm just lucky. I've spent my entire life blessed and lucky. And um, uh, <laughs> I hope I don't bring too much of that in the stories because I want these my poor protagonists to live horrible, horrible lives. Um <laughs> That's really mean of me, isn't it? I really should be nicer to my protagonists. Well, we'll come back to that. Uh, so what kind of fighting do you do? Fighting? All of it. Um, I had a dojo for 12 years. Uh, I did uh, karate and jujitsu so that you could learn how to do Eagle Claw Gung Fu. Um, I taught White Lotus Eagle Claw Gung Fu for mm, a little over 10 years. Um, nowadays, I do fencing and SCA. I it, they have a heavy fight that I really like, which is you wear full armor, carry a three pound stick, so wooden retained sword, and beat the snot out of your friends. And it's a blast. Um, it's a LARPing, but dang, it is a blast to hit people with sticks and get hit back. And yeah, you better wear a lot of steel on your body because it does sting. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I've done everything from boxing to kung fu to sword fighting, um, and I've yeah, 
I've been around. So you basically just become a case study for why girls live longer than boys. Because <laughs> oh, I beat my friends yeah. up for the fun of it. <laughs> my wife does sometimes mention that. She goes, you know, why did you do that again? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that does sound dumb, doesn't it? When you when you say it that way. I had uh, the day I used to think this was my, you know, my Hallmark day. I went to, we're at a camp out event called Gulf Wars. And uh, I started the day with a, a tournament. And then I went to a fencing competition and then I served lunch and I worked in the kitchen for two hours. And then I went to the afternoon and I fought in a heavy battle and then went to court for a couple hours. And then, which is a eh, not important, went back, cooked dinner and went and served at a bar then that somebody had set up on the side of the road for two hours. And around 10 o'clock I went dancing and then finally crashed at the fireplace and was finally too dead to move and crawled off into my bunk. And the wife's like, why did you do that? I'm like, I fought for six hours and danced for an hour in one night. And then I worked also for about six hours. How can you beat that for a day? This the, uh, the famous answer. It sounded like a good idea at the time. <laughs> the next day, I got to admit that the next day I woke up and went, I'm going to lay here for a while, maybe a long while. Maybe till tomorrow. <laughs> oh, I uh, picked up some bruises across my ribs that rolling over um, would wake you up. So about halfway through the night, I'm like, oh, I can't lay on that side. Okay, let's try the other side. Oh, but, but man, yeah, I, I, I get to fight the lion. It's an old joke from a um, Monty Python, but if I get the opportunity, I get to fight the lion. Yeah, so I'm going to die. Yeah, okay, fine. But yeah. And yeah, if they gave an opportunity to shoot somebody up to the moon to go on a moonwalk or go to Mars, yeah, I'd go. Damn straight. Would it, would it kill me? Uh, I would check the odds first. That, that always, you know, when they talk about would you go, I keep remembering that scene from, uh, was it uh, Independence Day where they go up to stop the asteroid? Uh, and they're like, when they ask him for their list of demands, and he's like, I never want to pay taxes again, and I want you to bring back eight tracks. <laughs> uh, that, that's going to be me someday if they let me yep. go. Yeah, 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 there it is. We can have, I, I, I don't have a collection yet, but I've got my uh, mother in laws coming to me. So, so then I'll, I'll still have something to listen to. Okay. There, there you go. <laughs> All right. We're going to pause for a moment while we shamelessly shill for the man. From our Max Tuesday author of Brains, the post-apocalyptic pick-a-path adventure with more than 60 endings, comes the Susie Steele adventures. Susie has a heart of gold, a set of bad dreams, and a hidden destiny. Six months ago, Susie's father went to work and never returned, leaving Susie to her hobby of chasing away nannies. That is, until the mysterious and glamorous Cassandra roars into her life, driving a red sports car and promising to be the best of friends. When Susie stumbles on her father's secret lair, a world of magic, ghosts, and mysteries beckons. Can she discover the truth, avoid being expelled from school, and keep a ruthless secret society off her back? She's to have a ghost of a chance. She'll need the help of her best friends, one grumpy cat, and a whole lot of daring. The Susie Steele Adventures from R. Max Tilsley. Book 1, The Steel Trap. Book 2, The Steel Bite. Perfect for readers 9+. Plus. Available in print and ebook. 
All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. Uh, this episode is going long, as you've already noticed by our pacing, dear listener. But we're having fun, so you better have fun, too. Or else. Uh, so transitioning from the writing side, have you got any cool fan art or had anyone cosplay your stuff yet? No. That's a sadness. Um, of course, anytime anybody wears Irish gear, that's a cosplay for my gear. That's okay. I'll take it. All right. All right. I'm an Irish historian. So I'm on all these uh, Facebook websites and we uh, all argue about uh, what century Lena's came out, et cetera, and so forth. But yeah, if I see somebody in a yellow dress, I'm like, yep, that's, that's one. Now I keep uh, trying to find uh, some uh, woman who's going to look like, you know, uh, you know, giant muscular and have her in a yellow dress and have her be my Brea. Uh, I, I don't have anybody who could possibly be my seven foot eight, uh, um, protagonist in that one way late is just too big but if you meet somebody i'll, I'll dress him out <laughs> so and if you do if you do cosplay stuff you know join his newsletter and send him the pictures because every author wants to see that yeah. so or, or tag him on on twitter you know he's there too um yeah. so and and you know if you're not quite tall enough stilts are a thing people be ambitious oh you know what i don't care i love <laughs> Um, I am, uh, and if anybody wants to talk about one of my books, just, just come on Twitter, annoy me, please. Um, I, I can talk for hours about. You heard it here first, annoy him. I hope his kids aren't listening. All right. So <laughs> has anyone ever asked for photographs since you started writing? Yeah. And well, um, you know, I, I do Dragon Con and I get the autographs. Um, uh, I sell a lot of books at Dragon Con and, um. This year I'm not going because poverty, but in general, and I'm not poor, note, but um, I, we've had some deaths in the family and I've flown out to Ohio or had my wife fly out to Ohio six times. I am broke. I am going to uh, one con this year, but I am having to miss my usual. So what was the first time someone asked for your autograph like? Um. I, admittedly, I was looking forward to it because, you know, hey, look, here's a book and it's signed. And um, um, when it was out of there, so I was at a panel at Dragon Con and um, um, a lady came up to me, a nice young lady, and told me I was her favorite rocket scientist. And I signed a bookmark that that I, I'd handed them out at the con. And I just um, it was a pure poison bookmark and I signed it for, her. and I, I, I don't know what to think about being somebody's favorite rocket scientist or anything like that. I'm, I hope people like what I do, my stories or my rocket science, but, um, I'm still not adept to the concept of having a fan outside of my own family. Um, <laughs> my dad loves what I write and that's all I care about right now. <laughs> Well, well, admittedly, they probably don't know that many rocket scientists. So, you know, that's I guess another one because I, I kind of work with a dozen. So for me, it's not as tricky to meet a rocket scientist. I just have to like open my door. Um, other people have a lot more trouble. So my uh, cousin almost went to school. She got accepted to a rocket science program, and she took nuclear medicine instead. And I'm like, no, this is my opportunity to say I was related to a rocket scientist, and you ruined it for me. So, so my sister's husband had these bad pickup lines in college 
and before he met my well when he met my sister he was like hey i'm a rocket scientist and she's like hey my brother's a rocket scientist um he goes like oh wait no that's wrong i'm a i'm a brain surgeon she goes oh great my other brother's a brain surgeon <laughs> poor guy yeah he's like okay i i'm an accountant <laughs> it turns out that was what she was looking for um my sister i mean i guess all's well that ends well <laughs> yeah. my sister's the the smart one of the family um and i'm saying this because i'm an outcome-based person and when she says i'm gonna get a cfo and i'm gonna make 200 blank a year and we're gonna have a house and three kids and 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 she lays it all out and then five years later she's on there she is a smart cookie um, and all she has to do is sit in a library all day she's got an ms in library science she hangs out in the school library which is for her like i mean if you gave her an opportunity what would you do during the day hang out in the library yes so she plays around all day gets paid for it and goes home to the mansion that she wanted she does well um my brother i could think of worse things than working in a library yeah now my brother he's got it hard he has no fun at all he of course he gets hot chicks all the time that's kind of an annoyance but um because you know he's a surgeon he has to put in 60 hour weeks and all this crap it's, a, it's really annoying I, I don't think he's very bright about that but he is a surgeon and um and me, I'm just a rocket scientist, and I make a decent, really decent wage, which I'm not going to complain about. It gets in the way of writing, though. Uh, <laughs> if I were a millionaire, I would work less and write more, but I probably wouldn't stop doing what I'm doing because it really is a lot of fun. Um, I mean, you know, that's probably the only job where people legally let you blow stuff up. I know. Um, so it used to well, be... Well, one of the only, you know, I yeah, know some EOD people. I, I was told that uh, I, I let the uh, I, I play with high tech and uh, I play with radiation and I set fire to high tech devices. I really do this for pay. And um, now I have a team that does it for me while I watch. All I have to do is give them money, sit back and watch things catch fire. It, it is really fun. And uh, it's not my money. So I, I'm, it's all win. So if you're listening, dear inner 12-year-old us, you really can make money playing with fire. Just go to school first and do it the right fire. way. I got four degrees in fire. Go for it. <laughs> Just, I'm not even kidding. I got two double masters all in fire. Well, thermal hydraulics, which is fire. Um, instrumentation, which is looking at fire. Plasma physics, which is really, really hot fire. And material science, which was <laughs> fire. I, I, I like proof. <laughs> so I, I have fun. I like it. I, I gotta tell you, there's I am I'm in the geeky. I tell people and, and and my manager, the person who works for me, tells tells me to stop telling this. So I'm, you guys aren't my when I'm hiring people, I say, Yeah, the analyst job is the most boring job on the planet. You're gonna have to dig through four hundred papers. You're gonna have to be the most absolutely painstaking person on the planet you're gonna to have to be really obsessive about your parts and that, and you have to be right all the time and then you have to present this to a customer and they're like okay I, I guess we could do that i'm like i've done it for 20 years it's kind of rough um but nobody's gonna let me stop because it's really what i do and then we take parts and then you get to go take them to the lab and set them on fire and um it, it's um uh, 
radiation is hard the first decade or so, but after that, it gets real easy and uh, you should do it. Um, I need more radiation engineers. I've only got like uh, 20 and I need another dozen. So hurry up and get your college degrees and come apply. Um, well, you heard it here first, people. Yeah, yeah. Go play with fire and blow stuff up and you can get paid. Yep. Um, as long as you don't blow yourself up, which is, um, there's an XKCD. We, we actually put this around at work the other day, which is, is it an energy source physicists are really excited about? And if it's yes, don't stand over there. And if it's no, maybe it's an okay. But, but if physicists are really excited about it, maybe you should leave the room. <laughs> I, I, I like the jokes. So have you ever spotted anybody out in public reading your book since you started publishing? Yeah, I, I was at uh, Dragon Con just last year, and I was with um, uh, Speaker at Lab Animals. Um, ah, I know him. Uh, and uh, we're talking about, I don't remember, uh, famine after the, the snap in Avengers. It was a dumbass um, panel, but we're having a blast answering questions and being dumb. And uh, I and I reach over and I'm shilling a book and I pick up uh, Pure Poison and the guy in the front row holds up Pure Poison. I'm like, you could buy two. <laughs> One for your friend. But uh, yeah, but it's a, it's weird. I mean, at Dragon Con, I guess I have fans, people who come at least to regularly to, to, to events I've done over the last decade or so. I've been there since 96. So um, I love talking and that people like listening to me or reading my stories. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I'm just glad because I'm going to talk anyway. I'll talk for free. I'll write the stories for free. I'll just keep going. And if you guys like it, I'm still here. Great. Yeah, the uh, the speaker to the lab animals, I met him at the last Honor Con. It's one of the few cons I've actually been to because it was less people. Yeah. And somebody did one of the usual anti-science, like, why are they faking all this stuff just to make money off of us with medicine? Because there's a panel about the difference between cryogenics and cryofreezing and all, all the different stuff people mix up. And he just looked over and he had the nicest smile. And he's like, man, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> I don't know that I could have been as nice because I wanted to yeet the woman out of the room. <laughs> And he was just so sweet as he basically told her she was a moron. I'm like, okay, I should take notes on how to be more. He's got remote know, control why. mice in his lab, for God's sake. He's got the weirdest freaking mad science on the planet. Ah, oh. he's he's an interesting fellow. So, all right, and I so him, I have him leading uh, pure around the the uh, the labs in Divine Dark um, in my third book. Um, I have him. I have her go to North Carolina, and she's going to a lab and. Um, uh, uh, the the lab director leads them around, and I throw in a couple of hints. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I All right, so funny. Him. Anyway, well, I mean, if you let them live, then you didn't do your job right. You're supposed to kill your friends in books. Gotta kill them all, right? Yeah, that's right. Get the full set. So, yeah. what's the weirdest or funniest interaction you've had with fans since you started writing? Boy, you caught me off guard there. I don't know. I don't remember. Had a few interesting ones, but mostly, yeah, no, nah, I don't know. Um, I we talk, and I oh, yeah, that story. Let me think that one through real quick. So, a whole series of my books are Irish history, sort of, 
there's a there's a fantasy element to it, but it's a um, based very strongly in Pyrrhus uh, ancient history that runs about 2000 BC, and um, a really nice older fellow. God, I got I'm trying to look at my hair. Yeah, uh, he had more white hair than me, so I'm going to call him an older fellow. He comes up and um, he's talking about um, papers that people have written about Irish history. And uh, he's got some disagreements with how I've interpreted that work. And I'm like, uh, yeah, who's, who's paper? And he gives the author's name. And uh, it's my name. Uh, it's not Hawk Austin. I have another name. And uh, I'm like, yeah, that I like that guy's papers. Um, I, I think they're pretty good. And, uh, um, and I ask him if, if he knows, you know, Handley's papers, uh, Tom Handley, because because um, I, I think that refutes what he's saying. And he goes, I'm Tom Hanley. I'm like, wonderful related. Uh, yeah. So this is just weird. And so um, hand, hand uh, that's why I said Hanley, handy, handy. Okay. It's been 20 years for goodness sake. Maybe it was Hanley. Um, uh, but he's an older If fellow. he's smart, I'll claim him. He's, <laughs> I think he is. Cause I do read his papers. Um, he, he talks about myth formation in uh, ancient Irish history. I'm going to geek for a second. The Tuatha de Danann actually happened. The people came over on a boat. They did conquer Ireland. These are events that occurred. At a certain point, they stopped being treated as historical figures and became mythological gods and demons and things like that. And the process where that occurs, mythologic, myth, uh, there's a word, mythalization, that he knew and he wrote papers on. And it's very interesting on how discussion of George Washington is going to progress from he was a, a guy who led armies to he's a mythological figure who symbolizes America in some way. And, and of course, now you see him in a Ford commercial driving a Mustang at, you know, 80 miles an hour across the field. This is a mythological character acting in a, a, a deist manner. And so, okay. So yes, I can geek out about history for ages. Um, but yeah, that was very weird. And I wanted to go, dude, let's just share papers and talk. But um, someone's, oh God. Um, I, I love everything, every subject that's not um, medicine because it, medicine bores the snot out of me and my brother's really big on it and so is my dad he's a nurse uh now he went from rocket scientist to nurse and i can explain that some other time but um uh you all the other science subjects i have probably got a stack of papers on i'm one of those guys who used to collect stacks of papers and read them and read all the smithsonian articles and read all the you know I, i'm just such a huge geek i'm just Ugh, I'm such a geek. <laughs> it on. is absolutely, it's absolutely okay. And if you wonder why you laughed, I found a, uh, I wrote down the, the joke about rocket science. I remembered. It's, uh, can anyone help me start a science, rocket science club? I'm having trouble getting it off the ground. I'm sorry. It's horrible. Say, dad jokes. Perfect. Dad jokes are the way to go. They're the secret to the universe. Uh, and, and I know I'll see myself out. So, yeah. all right. So, uh, Hawk, this is where we ask you for your uh, Reader's Digest version of your body of work. Can you tell us uh, what you've written? Yeah. So, um, Broken Man, Bone God. 
Those are ancient Irish history set in uh, 1300 BC. Um, they are about um, four cultures interacting in Ireland, and that would be horribly boring, except it's a ghost story where the priestess is trying to stop a ghost, and while the local king is trying to have uh, her killed because um, because politics. And that's complicated and difficult. But um, And Bone God has my best monster ever. Um, it is a golem. It is a spirit so old and powerful that it makes its own golems, which is um, collecting a bunch of bones and assembling some kind of a figure out of them, wrapping it in skin, pouring in blood, and it sends it off to kill people. And of course, you can chop it up as much as you want, because once he's killed you, he'll take your bones. That's Bone God and Broken Man and uh, Ancient Irish History and Someday Serpent King coming. I won't say coming soon because it won't be soon. Um, and then the second series is Pure Poison, uh, Immaculate Corpse, and Divine Dark. And that's the Purity Wellman series. And they're about a lovely young girl who died in 1958, and she's back. And she can see the monsters that um, the veil keeps hidden from us. The veil is like a tattered rag for her, and she... Uh, can see through it and see the real monster standing there. And other than that, why is she back from the grave? How is she going to get her life back when she's been gone for 60 years, etc.? So uh, it's urban fantasy and uh, a lot lighter in, uh, in politics and all that than, uh, than Bone God. And then my newest book just came out is um, Castle Brave, and it is um, military fantasy. I was responding to a challenge from Declan uh, to write pulp, and I failed. Um, I have not been able to write a pulp novel yet. I got um, a few, there are a few chapters in that book which are pulp, and the rest of them are my usual too much politics, too much talking, and um, really interesting characters. Um, it's military, and it is, uh, as I put in my dedication, um, the it's for my friends at Ditra, who, despite knowing all the wonders of science, still realize that anything that happens on TV and movie would require magic. There, I fixed it for you. Um, so it's uh, elven rangers rescuing a dragon from a castle. Um, and it's a blast. It's fun. Um, has some of my favorite characters in it and some of my least favorite. Um, you should hate them along with me. Um, and that's it. Five novels. Uh, wait, one, two, three, six novels. And, uh, I've got uh, core human coming out as soon as somebody buys it. <laughs> so, uh, it's, it's being passed around as we speak. All right. So, uh, if any publishers are listening, scribble, uh, scribble out some offers and, and he's all yours. Uh, yeah. All right. So uh, now that we've talked about the uh, your body of work, we're going to talk specifically about Castle Brave, which is why we're here today. So what is the premise for this universe and how did you come up with it? Okay. So I came up with it because I've been doing military and I was not going to write science fiction anymore. So say if my boss. And um, uh, also the reason I started living under my pseudonym because my boss was tired of me putting my name on things at Dragon Con and etc. He said that was no longer acceptable. So I went full fantasy and I um, 
I'm still writing what amounts to a modern military novel. Um, these are airborne rangers. They jump out of an aircraft. They um, infiltrate, um, assassinate, and um, uh, and remove. Um, I used magical analogs for most technology. The year is roughly the same. The level of society is similar. Um, except the society is the Vanir elves and they're being attacked by the Asir elves and the Asir using uh, dragons have wiped out half the continent. And only now are we finally, have we, have we, the Vanir, killed off the, the red dragons and have pushed the, the Asir forces back to the mountains and they're about to push them back over the mountains. At which point the future changes. And by that, I mean, we use, they use sci-fi, uh, psionic future intelligence, uh, because it's military, everything's an acronym, sci-fi. Sci-fi looks into the future and they've seen us winning this war, except now they don't. Now there's dragons in the sky. Now there's cities burning to the ground. What's going on? So there's a mission to, um, they, I don't want to get into the entirety of it, but there's a mission to rescue what may be a pivotal, pivotal captive of the Asir, uh, a dragon. And uh, they have a civilian along. And uh, anybody who knows Army knows how much they love having a civilian advisor along on a military mission. And um, there's 20 soldiers and the usual mix of perfectly normal people and psychos and um, they have to enter a castle, um, find the civilian, rescue it, which is not a mission that special forces get applied to, but um, that's been added to their repertoire today and they're not real happy with that. And then they're going to blow everything up. And that's, um, that's the simplicity of the mission. Obviously, problems mount. Everything craps up, partially because there's a civilian along, partially because the enemy are putting a lot of effort into this. And at the end, at the middle of this, do they need to just turn around and go home and take the loss? And, uh, and that's the real question. And they fight it out. And there's a lot of interesting things happening. The lieutenant really is that smart. And he isn't going to get them all killed. Um, that's a trope. If you know that one, um, the, the smart Lieutenant that gets everybody killed. Um, they hate lieutenants. Of course, everyone does. Um, but he's a really smart Lieutenant and they have, uh, uh, the psycho, uh, who's there just to kill people and he's really good at it. And they have, uh, magic users. Um, a kind of a cute uh, inversion of that trope. Uh, I kind of liked what I did with it. So imagine you could heal yourself, right? I mean, you're a magician. You have a heal spell, right? Sense? Yeah. Okay. So you go uh, go out to the gym and you work out and you knock out 50 push-ups and you collapse. You've torn, torn your elbow. Yeah, heal it. Now do 50 more. Do another 50. 
when are you going to stop? How long a workout can you do? So we've got a, um, a guy in top-notch armor, uh, Sable Hawk armor, because, hey, I like the name. And uh, he's uh, a wizard, and he's about 6'8", and he can lift 400 pounds before he turns on the armor. He works out eight hours a day, literally all, he's, all he can do. And uh, when he turns on the armor, he can kick down walls. And he has a really good time at it. <laughs> so he will be leaping through the air, smashing people, knocking down walls. It's, it's, uh, he's not real good at the Elvish side, but he's uh, real good at breaking things. Um, but it's a, it's, a, um, it's a fun book with lots of great fights. And um, uh, you don't know how it's going to end, except I do have a hint in the title. Um, and maybe that's too hinty. Do you know what the is? Castle Brave too much of a hint? No, because nobody knows what that is, right? No, I don't. I'm not following that one. Okay, that went over my head. So, I'll tell you what. I had a reader read the novel, and he said, "You know, I like everything except the title. Doesn't sound military enough. Why did you use Brave? You should have used Castle Bravo. That would have sound military." It would. You know why? Because it was. Castle Bravo is a military um, event. In fact, it's a ditcher event. Actually, they called it Nuclear Weapons Organization when um, when Castle Bravo was going off. But if you look it up, it's a hint. Okay. Uh, we'll check that out later. But, um, all right, so that is the story of how you came up with the idea. But uh, before we dive too deeply into these characters, we're going to take a moment where we look at this sexy cover, and you're going to oh, tell us the story yeah. behind the art. So let me do that. Put oh, that on yeah, the screen. Yeah. Um, that is really nice art, isn't it? Um, I like it. Looks like a painting. I thought it was a mistake it at first when I saw it. Uh, it's, it's oh, okay. Um, if you had the full book art, um, well, you know, this is one of those cases where I could turn on the the – I have the painting up on my wall. Paul Maitland did the full painting for me. And there's some ruins off to the left of the guy here. And uh, um, in the full hardcover, it's going to be a wraparound. So you'll be able to see some of that. But um, yeah, Paul Maitland is a, a artist I met at Dragon Con some years ago. And I asked him for this cover. And uh, he, uh, we talked about it a lot. He didn't agree do everything I asked him for, but we got dragons, we've got the tower, um, we've got a guy in powered armor, a sword, a cape, yeah, this will do. Now, if you read it, you'll see all the things he got wrong, but he didn't read it, so don't expect a, um, an artist to read your book, they don't. Um, but he did He did a really, really nice painting for me, and uh, I hung it up on my wall. It's a, um, absolutely fantastic art. Okay, so that is, um, and, uh, it looks good. I, I really like it. All right, so now let's dive in deep. Uh, you know, we're only an hour in, and we're just getting started, people. So uh, what can you tell us about the uh, their 30-second elevator pitch? What would it be? Oh, this is uh, Elven Rangers rescuing a, a dragon from a castle. Um, the complexities of that fill out hundreds and hundreds of pages. Um, the The heroes are mostly elves with a few humans mixed in there's magic there's 
magical guns, magical armor, magical power supplies. Um, there's also perfectly normal knives and swords. And uh, the enemy includes Jotun, which are uh, giants. So if you can imagine, uh, you know, eight foot tall, uh, blonde hair, blue eyed guys out of the north who uh, have armor every bit as good as ours, possibly better, and also all the magic. And um, uh, they like to ride dragons. Ugh. So they are not what you'd call your uh, normal villains. They are absolutely soldiers of the uh, most powerful tanks that you can imagine in a fantasy ish world. And then, of course, we also have some elves um, among the enemy, too, and uh, Bogwin which are, um, Bogwin is a, a early Welsh goblin. So I, I use that for a little bit of difference. Um, what do you want to know about all this? There's dragons, man. Dragons are awesome. Dragon. So besides the dragon, what do you think makes this novel special? It's, um, wow. You know, there's a lot special about the novel. The The part that I really like is that I think I've captured the military unit and you'll really like how the characters interact with each other. They have um, a chemistry and um, and the, the civilian, as she comes around trying to arrest um, soldiers and it finally dawns on her that she's on the wrong side of this, um, I think you'll be waiting for that moment because um, I, I can't help liking the civilian, but I also can't help hating her constantly for being wrong every damn time. And so you, you, there's, there's people who are right and wrong and, and in war, that's not the point. And you, and you have to, um, it, the characters in any of my books are all character driven I write characters. I know people. Most of my characters who aren't psychos are people I've met. And actually the psycho I kind of met once too. So they're all real people, um, despite the fact that they're elves and and other things. Um, and frankly, uh, if you're going to write a game later or something, I didn't balance this. The wizards are woefully overpowered if you want to see a wizard that can kick butt chop people down with swords and blow shit up this is where you get it this is no wussy wizard who says hey, look i'm going to come out of the dawn here in two days and, and i'll bring some cavalry with me because i don't got any real magic no <laughs> this is a wizard who's going to be throwing fireballs and uh and mowing down enemies this is good stuff okay so what tropes do you feel like castle brave hits the best Oh, um, so the lieutenant trope, I've already had a fight with a lieutenant about it. Um, so the lieutenant trope is my um, central trope of this novel. And the lieutenant trope is the lieutenant comes in with a, a degree. He's super smart and he doesn't know soldiering and he's going to get everybody killed. Um, my lieutenant has a Ph.D. He is super smart and he might get everybody killed um he's um again there's moments where you're gonna hate him because he's so wrong and there's moments where he will rejoice when he is correct um 
he's really good at what he's good at. Um, and sometimes he's really wrong. <laughs> and so this is a, um, it's a trope and it isn't just, a, he's not a cardboard figure. I'm, um, he is absolutely a real person and you'll know that from chapter one. He is chapter one and, um, he's as real as it gets. Um, but it's a trope. Um, I, I took the weak wizards trope and completely flipped it because I'm tired of weak ass wizards. And so um, I, I made the most bone crushing, powerful wizards I've ever had. Um, what else is there? Uh, oh, and I got a psycho killer. Um, one of my uh, uh, corporals is, uh, so wizards are, are very long lived and he actually lives from the time period before the Asir took over half the continent and his home, family, forest, everything was burned to the ground by red dragons. He's uh, on the other side of Snapped. Um, he has used to be a very caring, loving parental figure with, well, he's wealthy and had great holdings and all this. Now he is a corporal and he carries a knife. Knives will uh, get the job done. Um, um, yep. <laughs> as, as anyone in infantry knows, knives are there for a purpose. And um, he's that guy with that purpose. Absolutely. So what subgenres besides fantasy do you feel like this, uh, this novel slots into? Uh, it's military. Um, it is, there is a little epic fantasy in it. And that I hope that I could tie enough together to build an epic fantasy series out of this in the future, maybe. But right now, epic is kind of on the side. Military fantasy. Um, the colonel is the colonel. The, the captains are captains. Everybody here is a, a military person that it, you would recognize. Uh, if you don't, if first sergeant, um, the top is my first sergeant. If Elanon isn't the most relatable person you that you've met i mean he's he's a first sergeant and, and i'm sure you your infantry or were right you know this yes, sir you know enough first sergeants or you've seen a few right this is uh i tried to avoid them but yeah <laughs> there's that point too and oh yeah there's a um a guy comes up to him in the hall and starts yelling at him about what meeting he's supposed to be at and he sits there smoldering going this is going to go badly for him. How many minutes do I have left? Can I take him out to the track and run around the track for an hour? I really, really <laughs> want to do that now. Okay, now I'm going to miss the meeting. All right. Um, but yeah, don't, don't, if, if you know a first sergeant, don't charge him and start screaming problems at him. That usually is um, poor. But otherwise, no, he's, he's a, a guy who is very effective at being, uh, uh, running a, a unit and, uh, well, infiltration. Um, he's the most invisible guy on the planet, and uh, he's good at killing people. But also, he runs a really good group and uh, has obvious good camaraderie with his men and uh, his sergeants. And, uh, um, I mean, he, he reminds me of guys at work. And uh, Aditra, the first sergeant, is barely a rank, you know. Um, the lieutenants, they consider the, the trash feeders that they allow to walk in the building sometimes. Um, have you, have you gone to the Pentagon? 
Um, I, I don't no, I have not. I don't recommend it. Um, but I lived in the Pentagon for a few years, and um, you know, lieutenants are 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 uh, the people we play all the pranks on. And uh, nobody below lieutenant colonel do they does anyone even ask for directions? Um, it, it's uh, but I I know uh, plenty of soldiers um, who've been assigned to my units. Um, but uh, I, I admit that uh, I like hanging out with the, the the dumb lieutenants and the sergeants and the you know. Uh, it's where I've been. I can appreciate that. So let's talk about the story itself. Uh, what can you tell us about the main character? It sounds like you've got a cast of characters instead of just one main character. So, so what? I do, I do a multi-viewpoint, and my main character, the main protagonist, is uh, First Sergeant Alanon, uh, top, and the other main protagonist is um, um, the lieutenant, and... Um, Kalassian, and he's uh, real smart and uh, really assigned out of his depth because he's intelligence and he's assigned to uh, a mission because reasons it'll be really apparent from page 10 of the novel. I'm not going to get into it, but they have different viewpoints. They clearly see um, warfare in a completely different way from one from a, you know, pure staff intelligence. He never gets out of his dress uh, blacks and, uh, you know, the guy who's used to crawling on the dirt for a living. And um, there's also split scenes in there with uh, uh, privates who uh, have, have powered armor, happen to be magic users. There's a scene in there with uh, um, a guy who's a psycho and is going out there behind enemy lines to kill people. Um, and there's very limited scenes from the major. Uh, the major isn't a military rank in this. It's a civilian rank. Um, you, they have um, adjuncts and majors on the civilian side, and um, so she's a cop, effectively, and um, she uh, doesn't approve of anything that's happening in this book. I will tell you directly, knowing her personally, she doesn't approve, and uh, <laughs> she makes that very clear from day one, point one. Why the hell do you think that you get to record everything I'm saying? Click. Recording ends. Uh, okay, that's she's a special. Um, she's special, but um, and you know, uh, a, a cop, and we got other. Uh, there, the point of view shifts because it's a it's an operation, and I, I could have left it from just tops point of view and I did write it that way the first time and I thought man you're le you're losing the point of view of everybody top is um he's a soldier and after 10 years of soldiering of war he is hard in in the way that he doesn't um he doesn't worry about killing people it doesn't keep him up nights he's done it a lot this is his job. And while he thinks about, you know, not always doing this forever, he's not going to spend most of his time going, should I do this or should I do that? He takes a real straight, I'm on mission. This is what I got to do. And it, and I couldn't write a soldier that spent most of his time wondering if he was morally right or wrong. It just, I can't write a soldier that way. I admit there are soldiers like that, but I can't see a first sergeant 
spending his half his mission wondering about the morality of his actions. It's it's not a it doesn't feel right to me. And so I brought in characters who are morally wrong, and I brought in characters who are going to pass moral judgment on what soldiers do, and uh, a guy who's just simply not hardened to warfare, and really, it's his first time, and he's going to have um, the first first step lieutenant problems of uh, how do I get into a fight? How do I stop fighting? How do I how do I handle these things? And so I wanted to bring in a lot of different viewpoints from people um, who I know. And, and who I I want to express them in this book, and I think I did. So you're going to get all all of those viewpoints during the fight from well, and, and even then if I throw in the private people who just are having a damn good time fighting, and that's not a, a real healthy um, way to feel in the middle of a battle. But different strokes, and there is a wide variety of viewpoints in this novel. I mean, it's not unrealistic. Some people start to like it uh, if you see a lot of activity. Um, so we, you talked about your primary characters. Were there any secondary characters in this novel that were especially memorable to you? So, okay. Umbra is my favorite, and I do love her, and I have to be very careful because I know what happens if you love a character. It's really bad. Don't love your characters. Um, but I do love Umbra. She is... Um, She's in the um, Overlook group, so her mission, along with the um, psycho uh, corporal, is to to um, make sure the the exit paths are clear, um, which is getting behind enemy lines and killing anybody who might possibly be watching the exit lines. It's a it's a um, extraction piece. And it's called Overlook, and so she's part of Overlook, and she has a bad case of hero worship for the psycho psycho corporal um she calls him grandpa and she wants to grow up to be just like him and <laughs> that's that's about the most unhealthy attitude of anybody because <laughs> you shouldn't want to grow up to be a psycho killer but um but umbra is um, just so lovable that i just adore that girl and um I really hope she isn't a psycho killer when she grows up, but uh, depends on how many books in this series. <laughs> All right, that's always a noble goal. Uh, so, what about the bad guys? Um, obviously, no spoilers, but are is this a man versus nature? Although it sounds like you have clearly defined protagonists in this novel. So, so um, there is um, the villains are. Um, Every bit is good. I, I don't want um, wussy villains. Um, my enemy soldiers are not um, being rolled up because they're wusses. They are absolutely as good as, as our team, with exceptions. Obviously, we have some better people and some worse people. But in a special forces unit, you expect to have some of the best. So our best are as good as these guys. But these aren't. These aren't rollovers the bogwin have powered armor the jotun have powered armor the jotun are you know eight foot tall nordic heroes in powered armor that they call it frost skin it's um uh, unbreakable uh clear steel like material and uh they make armor out of it and it's powered and they're super strong and they're already eight feet tall 
And so, uh, yeah, these these guys are are harsh. And there's other things I'm not going to get into. But there's then the villains, the their generals, the uh, the seer, uh, the queen of the seer. Uh, so I have AI, crystalline intelligence, CI in this and the ci that they've found over in the asir lands is very old it's several thousand years old and it's evolved and we're calling them demons now because really what they want to do is kill everybody but um so the asir are using demons in their weapons and in their um, they're implanting them in some of their generals so the generals have um uh, I think uh, David Drake used this trope, you know, the 3,000-year-old computer that tells you everything your opponent's going to do ahead of time because it's just that smart. Um, that's what these demons are. They're super smart. They also have future sight. They also have every knowledge of technology. And so the villains are, well, the antagonist. Um, they're not necessarily villains, but they are definitely on the other side. And they have got really powerful equipment and abilities. And uh, um, it's not a walk in the park. It's not one of those where Conan the Barbarian wanders into a few hundred enemy and lays about with his sword until they're all blood and guts laying about. This is one-on-one uh, -on -one is likely to be fatal. Um, the advantage of special forces is you don't see us until we're gone. Um, you know. The uh, extraction team has cleared the exit way. You've performed your assassination, and you are you're on your way out before anybody. You know, there's dead bodies on the floor, and you're on your way out, and nobody knew you were even there. That's the way you properly run the special forces unit. Um, obviously, there's some issues with this one. There's a civilian involved. There's crap, but yeah, the antagonists are going to be. Um, powerful and interesting they're people too um they're not um they're not nature they're people they're you know viking warlord types nordic warlord types people you could get to like and you'd rather they were on the hero side than the enemy side i'd really like them um i wish i wrote a book where they were the good guys so if people buy enough copies maybe your publisher will ask you to do that <laughs> write it from their point of view yeah, I'm, so I'm gonna, I think I'm going to write another one. I thought of um, a Bogwin war machine, and it's uh, buried under a, a, a lake. And, uh, you know, I bet you they know where the Aesir know where it is. And you know what? It would be really horrible if they got it back out. I think there's another book here. Um, but I haven't started writing it yet. But it's uh, most of the time I have the story completely written in my head before I start typing. That is a very convenient problem to have. Yeah, if you ever come to one of my games, you'll understand. My son um, played the lieutenant the first time I, I role-played this out. Um, I oh, so I you, him, though. <laughs> you, you role you role-play out your scenarios to, uh, to get it straight in your head? To build the world. I don't have to worry about the um, – I don't want – my scenarios are more complicated – what I don't have is the world. And and people will say, well, what I want to do is this. And I go, well, of course you want to do that. Let me add that to the world. And so I start off with a, a brick and mortar fantasy world. And by the time I'm uh, halfway through their first adventure, I've got, you know, well, you've got a cyan cloak on, of course. It's Mark II. You're, the, you're you know, doing the best possible uh, invisibility that's available. 
uh, at this time. You know, this is the this is the, um, the how I build my worlds. Is I, I let people run around in them and break things. And at a certain point, I'm like, oh, I like that. I, I want to add that to the world. I want to take that out. Um, but the story itself, nah, nobody's dumb enough to to be one of my protagonists. <laughs> they get beat up and killed. Okay. Speaking of characters and getting beat up and killed, we told you we'd come back to this, but if your uh, characters met you in a dark alley and they knew who you were and the torment you put them through, how do you see that interaction playing out? <laughs> well, that would not be good. That would not be good. No. Um, That's I, enough I, that OP wizard. Yeah, I, that would be bad. No, if, um, if they thought that killing me ended their problems, yeah, I'd be dead on... Yeah. No, purity wouldn't kill me. So in, in those books, purity wouldn't kill me, but she'd really make me cry a lot because she'd have to she'd have to really have a talking to and come to Jesus moment, and I would have to stop writing such evil books to her. Um, <laughs> but, that would um, be an interesting conversation to film. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I, anyway, I was going to say, I can get Jennifer to do the other side of it. If I just figure out the – never mind. I would write a plot for anything. That's a fact. Um, okay. I've so, got Jennifer uh, planning. So Jennifer, uh, sorry, JD Voices does my voice acting for uh, Pure Poison. And uh, she wants me to write a book solely so a scene that she's come up with gets into the book. <laughs> Whatever works. Yeah. So this is a part where we take a peek behind the curtain and we ask, were there any cool scenes that you had to cut from this book that uh, would be entertaining? Yeah. So, so for reasons, um, anyway, top, the top ends up on a horse riding into battle, firing a, a Bogwin, um, an antique Bogwin flamer. Um, just to protect the rear guard. And I rewrote that three or four times. Um, uh, he really did get a, you know, hero on a white horse moment. Um, but it just couldn't work. It just didn't fit the narrative the way I had it built. And so I finally ended up having to, to ice it. And I, um, um, I don't regret it. It didn't fit, but he, and it just didn't fit, but it would have been real cool. Um, uh, I don't get to spend enough time setting things on fire with, with flamers. So uh, any more time mm -hmm. would have been good. Um, if so, you can imagine a shotgun with um, um, the shells are uh, uh, crystal magic. And you, uh, when you pull the trigger, it fires a beam of fire out about, you know, 50 yards. You can really set shit on fire. So if your DOD job falls apart, you could always work for Elon Musk. I hear he does uh, fire uh, flamethrowers. Yeah, not a flamethrower. <laughs> I needed a not a flamethrower desperately. Me too, but I couldn't get one before they sold out. So <laughs> finally, what can you tell us about the universe? Is there anything about this world where the story takes place that you haven't already covered? Um, so a lot of this when we get psychics, they start looking into the psychic plane where the gods are and how, how they look. And I think this is going to be a very interesting area to explore. Um, maybe other worlds attached to the psychic plane. Um, I really, 
I literally haven't explored it too much because I didn't want to make new rules and, and then find out I was breaking them halfway through. So I limited it to, to um, areas where I was really confident I knew all the rules. But I suspect the psychic plane is going to be interesting in the future. Okay. So you mentioned right now Castle Brave is a standalone novel. Um, but you've got ideas for the world. So what would it take to get you to expand that, that world into the more ideas that you have? More time in the day. I, I have um, seven novels on my list that I want to get written. Um, some of them are have-tos. I really have got to get Serpent King out before my dad dies because uh, he's really been waiting on that sequel now for several years. And, um, and then I, I want to get... Um, I'm an historian, and La Gran Compañía Catalonia is very interesting, and I would like to write that as a space opera. And now that I'm not at DOD, I would like to uh, uh, make that uh, spaceship battle I've been wanting to make. And uh, there's a few others, but um, yeah, it's and I've been I actually have a couple of fans of the Purity Wellman series who actually want me to write book four, and so. Uh, I do want to get another book in on Castle Brave, but it's probably going to just percolate in the back of my head for a couple of years before it, it really pops out. Unless, you know, a bunch of fans say, hey, I've got to have another book of that series, and then I'll see what I can find. First, you've got to come up with a title. <laughs> Titling can be a very difficult part of the writing process. I'm the worst. I have to have a title first. I don't know why. The book doesn't gel for me until I have a title, and then suddenly the chapters start falling out, and then I then I have twenty chapters written or outlined, and then and then I start writing. And um, the only one that hasn't done that is Serpent King, and only because it 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 originally was the Blessed Queen, and I had to change the title because um, because because the hero took a left turn in the middle of the damn book. And uh, I went and punched him a couple of times. It helped. You got to have those healthy coping mechanisms. Yeah. Well, luckily the hero of the protagonist, one of the two protagonists in the broken man series is actually my son. So I do get to punch him. Um, he's 26. I'm not beating a kid up. Um, I can punch him. <laughs> he can punch back. Technically speaking, he's not good at it. Uh, we'll pretend he's not listening and he doesn't know you. Oh, he knows. I, I, I <laughs> laughed his ass off. I told him what happened at the middle scene, and he said, yeah, but wouldn't I? And I said, exactly. You changed the entire plot right here in this damn scene, and you redid this. And I, ah! And he's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Okay. Anyway. Uh, it's the joys of having kids, you know, you get to kill them in literature or, or beat them up, whatever. Um, so we know that every literary universe has their own internally consistent rules for science, technology, and magic. So what sort of magic can we expect from these books? Well, I have, um, so magic requires, um, a power supply and it requires a, um, a glyph. Uh, mandala, I call them, and there's nine mandalas of magic, and so there's nine branches of magic, and um, however much magus you can put through a mandala, that's your uh, that's how you make spells, plus a few words here and there, and a, maybe a motion. But in general, 
um, spells are made by putting the source of magic through uh, a mandala. And they're pretty simple. Um, the air and earth magic, air is, you know, force, just shoving things around. Earth magic actually adds kinetic energy to an object, adds momentum to an object. So you, they're very similar, but you have to consider the differences. Um, fire and cold are essentially the same magic, one's run in reverse, um, just adding heat to objects or removing it. It's pretty simple magic field. The psionics gets a little complicated because it really involves a telepathic connection to the psychic plane to look into the future. And uh, death magic, weirdly enough, really is just a measurement of how much magus, how much energy is coming at you. And so if things happen in the future um, with a lot of magic or a lot of death, you can see them in the past on the psychic plane. Um, which is uh, kind of one of the underpinnings of this book. But um, uh, basically, that's why uh, psychic or at least magical energy is called death magic, because large amounts of death release, release large amounts of magic. Anyway, that's the sort of stuff. It's all written up in the back of the book. I have extra appendices in the back that go through all of it, because um, <laughs> there are rules. Uh, I can't do anything without rules. This is how you get your super nerd credit. You add appendices to your books. I know. <laughs> Even all your fantasy. All the magic systems. And I since I have a different magic system in every world, you get to read a bunch. <sighs> oh, so which magic system would you want for daily use and why? Man, I hate magic. Yeah, no. Um, no, I, if, if magic was as easy as, you know, envisioning a mandala and putting power into it, I would be a super wizard. But, um, yeah, it, it would be a great system, but it basically becomes science in the end. That was the whole point of it. It's, it's science. Um, in the end, the, uh, the wand, the Millstater 1911 wand has a button on it, and when you push it, it automatically projects a mandala so you don't have to mentally memorize any of them. And so... You know, mill standard. Uh, science. That is that is uh, something I had never encountered before in doing these interviews about the magic. So, all right. Um, so your your book clearly has you know fantasy creatures in it. So how did you go about creating those? Were they inspired by your nightmares? Did you let <laughs> nature inspire you? Um, create something out of whole cloth? I wish I knew. God, that's it. No, um, the the uh, dragons are people. Um, they're just big, super magical people, um, and, and I treat them that way throughout. Um, I don't bring in what you'd call magical creatures otherwise, except as um, there's a mad scientist on the bad guy side and he has in fact in the past turned perfectly normal creatures into magical dangerous creatures um because he's weird i i, I don't want to explain what he's doing he's trying to become a god it's a little weird um but no most of i i didn't do a whole lot of uh weird magical creatures um it's people and yeah okay I, do have a history of them, you know, this person existed first and then they created this race and then this race is a subset of this race, and, but nobody cares. 
this is um i have it all you know out on my wall but nobody cares um <laughs> uh, i could get okay. my own science but nobody don't don't let me go on find something else to ask okay well clearly this uh interview is winding down but before we let you go, was there anything about Castle Brave that we didn't ask you before uh, we wrap this up? I, no, maybe. Let me think about that. Um, that's a good question. Uh, it, it's a of all my novels, this one is going to be the easiest to step in, not know a damn thing before it starts read it to the conclusion and put it down again. It is a absolutely self-standing, perfectly good by itself novel. You don't have to know anything to walk into it. I have a few uh, insider jokes. If Mill Standard 1911 is an insider joke or if it's just um, a really stupid reference. Um, but yeah, I don't ask anything of the reader. It is all given to you. Uh, other of my books, uh, you'll have to try to figure out a lot of stuff. This one, boy, when the ending shows up, you're going to say, yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. And it's great. It's absolutely worth it. And um, you, it, you'll love it. Okay. Uh, and before we let you, uh, before we let you run, we do have this standard question that I normally uh, forget to the last minute. But what would the age range be for this uh, for this story? Like, what would you say the target age for uh, for people reading? Because obviously, we have some families that listen to the show together, and uh, and so they're always asking, you know, is this appropriate for my kid? Yeah. So uh, I've got a person in here who cusses, and boy, does she cuss up a storm. If that bothers you, move it on. Um, uh, I won't say who. Um, uh, Major Moira is based on, but uh, yes, she cusses like a sailor on shore leave. Um, if that doesn't bother anybody, uh, it's not an advanced novel. I, I don't think my word choice is great for people who are that young. My daughter, who is 10, is trying to read Pure Poison, and occasionally she has to ask, ask, ask me words. I'm not going to say ask. She has to ask, ask me words. Um, because I don't always pick word choice for preteen. Um, but teenagers, dead gum. This is a teenager easily novel. And, uh, um, and, and anybody should love it. I'm 55 and I love it. I want to read it twice. I've read it about hmm. five years. I'm, I think it's great. Um, and he's not biased at all, people. Right. No, I, I was told a long time ago because I was writing an art novel and uh, Jazzy Lamplighter, my current editor, said, uh, write what you like. Even if nobody else in the whole world reads it, write what you like. And I, I, took, I took that. It took a while because I kind of wanted everybody to like what I write. And then it, it occurred to me that no one's going to like everything I write. And why even care? And now, at this point, I have reached the pinnacle of, I'm writing this for me. I I don't I do care that everybody likes it I care but it's not going to change how I write it this book is for me it is a blast and it's fun and if you like my novels if you like this novel you'll like all my novels this is a blast okay 
Uh, and so before we let you go, dear listener, let me remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right book. So do your part. Uh, the writing process is sort of um, synergistic and you have a role to play as well. And uh, evangelizing, sharing the good word of the books you love. See, I can't. I can spell it, but saying some of these words, I'm like, man, oh, God, you got to be out there already. Um, yeah, and we've been at it for an hour and 40 minutes. So, but yeah, so so leave the review, reviews, share your thoughts. Write reviews. Go on Amazon. I'll send you a copy if you need one, but write a review for God's sake. And I don't mean just for mine. Read Declan's novels. Write reviews. Read anybody's novels. Write reviews. I don't care if your review is, that's pretty good. Check. I prefer you put in 100 words or whatever, but you do it your way. Write a review. Absolutely. All right. So Haw uh, Hawking's Austin, we're going to go with the, the name that's going to be on the cover because I know you, you call yourself Hawk. But how can listeners find you on these wild, wild interwebs? Okay. So I'm not all that um, out there. I do have a Facebook page, The Worlds of Hawking's Austin, because um, all my books are in a different world. And um, I like, uh, if you're on Twitter, I'm Sable Hawk, uh, S-A-B-L-E-H-A-W-K, Sable Hawk. Um, that sounds like uh, a comic book hero. What? That sounds like a comic book hero. Yeah, it's me. <laughs> I happen to be a comic book hero. Um, in your yeah. other spare time. Yeah, in my spare <laughs> time. Uh, but yeah, and then uh, what? Oh, uh, the website sablehawk.org. All right, and as usual, dear listener, you know the drill. We will leave those in the show notes where you can uh, you can find all the things. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters or blades podcast at gmail.com blasters or blades podcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen over at facebook.com backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. You can visit us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. We actually do have a domain name that's going to be a landing page website. So it's not just the uh, the Anchor FM site. Uh, Doc was kind enough to purchase the domain name. Nobody had taken it yet, but we don't have anything there. So, uh, but we'll, that is coming uh, after DragonCon, of course, because everyone she knows is also associated with Dragon. So yeah, they're going to be busy until mid-September when they come out of their Dragon coma. Uh, but if you want to support the show, you could do that on uh, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades, where for as little as 99 cents a month, you can help keep the lights on, or you can support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast, and I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink until their liver explodes. Uh... And since she's not here, we can call them all quitters today because, you know, they're busy doing dragon I mean, There's three stuff. of you, right? There's three of you? Yeah, yeah. We've got Nick Garber, who's a comic book artist and a Border Patrol agent who is busy doing stuff on the border. 
uh, he, he's uh, got some availability, dear listeners, since we're talking about that, uh, to do potentially recorded episodes with just the three hosts. So we're going to try to fit some more of those in as well. Uh, now that his availability is stabilized, we're going to work on rearranging some schedules to make that happen because it's always enjoyable when we get to chat with him. But uh, before I prattle on too much longer, we want to thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For the aforementioned Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Handley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.